0: Programming note. Now that we've got the SS and the Wehrmacht back along the German border, I think this is a good place to stop with the SS storyline. I will pick it up when we get to this part of the World War II story in the regular series. But for now, I feel like this series of membership episodes is making the main storyline anticlimactic. So, let's move on. But I hope you enjoyed the story of the SS. The following is a standalone episode. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 172 A Delicate Dance. Of all the uncertainty that World War II brought to the world, that sense of which side to choose, if one had that luxury, or how to avoid choosing at all, which risks everything either way, is best seen in the example of the Republic of Turkey. Turkey emerged from the Ottoman Empire, much reduced, after the Great War. Indeed, it had been Britain's foreign policy, and that of France, to use the war to bring down the once-dominant power in that region. And it was in how the post-war era, the Versailles era, was handled that would go on to affect countries like Turkey as Germany felt humiliated and sought to restore its former glory, if not outright revenge. This desire of Germany's, coupled with the effects of the Great Depression, soon had world governments hoping to avoid a future war by looking to their own, but at the same time seeking alliances as a preventative measure, which mattered little as long as one side or one man, was determined to go to war. Which does not describe Turkey. And hoping to avoid another costly war, Turkey in October of 1939 signed a mutual aid pact with France and Great Britain after seeing the writing on the wall of the 1930s. But even this hopeful act felt meaningless by the government in Ankara when the Soviet Union joined with Nazi Germany in invading Poland In September of 1939, suddenly the game board had been flipped over again. Who could tell what would happen next? The best that Turkey could do was join with the rest of the Balkan Entente, Romania, Yugoslavia, and Greece, as they all declared neutrality when Germany invaded France on May 10, 1940. Rather, the Turkish government declared non-belligerency, which meant they were more than willing to supply those fighting with resources, but they themselves would not be engaging. But when France fell in only six short weeks, Turkey's president, Ismet Inonu, had to be wondering, did we pick the wrong side again? In the Great War, the Turks went with the Central Powers. This time, however, they would use treaties instead of guns and hope for the best. But the war became very real and even closer when German forces entered the Balkan Peninsula in June of 1941. In reaction to this, Turkey signed a non-aggression pact with Germany, officially a Treaty of Friendship in June of 1941, hoping that this would do much more in securing the country than a mutual aid pact with the two Western powers. And it worked. In one stroke, Turkey achieved relative safety, while Hitler gained a quiet nearby flank as he was about to launch Operation Barbarossa. Ankara would be criticized for this, but the truth was, Turkey did not have an adequate military to protect itself, yet was located in a critical juncture between Europe and Asia, so was basically striving for balance between dealing with the Axis and the Allies. Turkey might have removed itself from Hitler's crosshairs with the Friendship Treaty, but it was now the target of London and Washington, for of the Turkish imports flowing into Germany, one such item was chromite ore, used in making the famous and hardy Krupp stainless steel. Yet try as the Westerners might, they were not able to disrupt this trade until 1944, because Inonu realized one does not sign a treaty with Nazi Germany, i.e. Hitler, start the actual shipping of items, and then cancel the treaty. That was the fastest way to being bombed or invaded. So the balancing game began for Ankara of pacifying Hitler while trying to appease the Allies. In their defense, the Allies would try the carrot before applying the stick. In December of 1941, just days before Pearl, FDR declared that Turkey was eligible for lend lease material. This was supposed to help keep British influence in Turkey strong and to keep Turkey neutral. In a very short time, most of the goods going to Turkey were coming from the United States, but FDR let Churchill handle relations with Turkey. Jumping ahead a bit, With the Battle of Britain safely behind them, and as Moscow refused to be knocked out of the war, in January of 1943, at the conference at Casablanca, FDR and Churchill talked about convincing Turkey to actively join the war effort. Again, Britain would take the lead on this. For Stalin's part, he would end up pushing hard for this later that year, during the October Tripartite Foreign Ministers' Conference in Moscow, and in November at the Tehran Conference. Stalin did not expect the Turks to achieve some great military victory, but he wanted the Germans distracted to the south so he could focus on saving Leningrad while keeping an eye on Finland. In fact, Stalin wanted a Turkish declaration of war by the end of the year. As for the Western Allies, their military experts did not think that Turkey was in danger of a German invasion. However, should Ankara make such a move, Berlin was sure to react, which is exactly what the Turkish leader surmised, so his government was instructed to continue dragging its feet, in all regards. This game of the Western Allies giving Turkey aid, and then asking for it to join the war, only to have Turkey take the weapons, say thank you, and still resist joining the war, went on until February of 1944. Washington and London could see that their requests were not going to be honored, so abandoned their aid shipments to Turkey. This, more than any cable from Churchill, got Enonu's attention. Still, trade between Turkey and Germany continued for a few more months. Only in April of 44 did the shipments of chromite ore stop. But not until August of 44 did Ankara suspend all commercial and all diplomatic relations with Nazi Germany, basically when it was safe to do so, which is not the same thing as going to war. As we will soon see, getting Turkey into the war, for a specific reason, had been Churchill's pet project. However, setting up the United Nations to hopefully stymie any future war was FDR's pet project. So, in February of 1945, Turkey was invited and attended the inaugural meeting of the United Nations, though tensions between Ankara and the Western Allies remained. Yet each side knew they needed each other, certainly in the world that was forming as the war wound down. Not only did the Allies get Turkey's attention by severely cutting back on material aid in 1944, but the two leaders made it clear to Inonu that his country would not be invited to join the UN if Ankara did not declare war on Nazi Germany. Being backed into a corner, and let's be honest, as it was relatively safe to do so by this time, Turkey did declare war in February of 45. But Turkish forces were not sent out to fight. Basically, with the war all but over, the Western leaders had another reason for forcing Turkey to openly join their side. With the war winding down, the hunt for stolen Nazi loot, or Nazi personnel themselves, in hiding, had begun. Turkey was expected, like all the other Allies, to open their doors wide while the Allies searched for Nazis. Yet, ironically, it was this shift in official status that saved Turkey from the Western Allies pressing too hard in wanting access. Inonu could claim that he had done all that was asked of him so far, which allowed Ankara to drag its feet a bit more, even though Inonu knew that the soon to be victors were worried about escaped Nazis using stolen loot for a resurgence which was certainly planned by certain unpunished Nazi members. Inonu's stalling tactics worked. Again, the U.S. State Department and the U.S. Treasury Department could not reach an agreement on how hard to press their newly active ally. Hence, no pressure at all was applied, which angered Churchill, FDR, and then Truman. Truman. For the U.S. had estimated that Turkey had somewhere between 51 and 71 million in looted monetary gold and other German assets. As the rebuilding of Europe was underway, that money was sorely needed. But then came the quickly evolving relations between the West and Soviet Russia. With the Cold War getting underway, specifically Soviet intentions towards the Dardanelles, and tension building up along the Soviet-Turkish border, suddenly the country that straddled Europe and Asia was vital to Washington, which led in part to the Truman Doctrine of 1947, that said Greece and Turkey would receive financial aid, with Turkey receiving $150 million dollars. In the end, Turkey offered up to turn over some $3.4 million in stolen gold, but no wealth actually changed hands. Further, Turkey made it clear that information of the dealings between itself and Nazi Germany would not be made public. Washington would just have to learn to live with this which became harder for the Truman administration as details began to emerge from Turkey's trade with the Nazis. German records showed that some of the gold that went to Turkey for its chromite came from the dental fillings of concentration camp victims, and that neutral Turkey was offering the best price. Further, the two German banks in Istanbul, the Deutsche Bank and the Dresdner Bank, channeled that stolen gold, and other precious metals from the infamous Melmer account, which the SS used to deposit their ill-gotten gains, which proved that Churchill had been right to give Turkey his special attention. For as the German munitions minister Albert Speer had written in November of 1943, much of Germany's manufacture of armaments would come to a halt within 10 months if Turkey's chromite exports were ended. And again, this trade had not stopped until Churchill and FDR threatened Turkey with economic war. But it must be remembered that Inonu, no matter how he is remembered by history, was just trying to keep his country out of war, and he had cards to play that most other countries did not. General history might view Inonu in a harsh light, but for those years of the war, His people had to be grateful. Turkey was not occupied, it was not bombed, its city smashed, nor its people enslaved. Postscript, Churchill, the wild card, and his Balkan dream. As previously stated, the Turks went with the Central Powers in the Great War and lost much. So, when Germany and the USSR invaded Poland in September of 1939, the following month, Turkish President Ismet Inonu joined the Allies, hoping to avoid another costly mistake. Then France fell in 1940. Inonu balanced his support for the Allies with a Turkish-German Treaty of Friendship. For the next few years, the Allies, but mostly Churchill, would work strenuously to bring Turkey into the war as an active member. Why? Only when declassified war cabinet records were released did the truth come out. Just before the attack on Pearl Harbor, Secretary of State Cordell Hull told British Ambassador Lord Halifax that Britain would take the lead in getting Turkey into the war. Indeed, by early 1942, both London and Berlin were actively pursuing the Turks for their respective coalition. The main part of the U.S. was to provide lend-lease material, which Churchill was allowed to control. The British Prime Minister made sure that Turkey only got enough war material for defensive purposes. The idea was to keep Turkey relatively weak, unless, of course, it fully came over to the Allied cause. When Churchill and FDR met in January of 1943 at Casablanca, they worked out their overall strategy. But in the end, the British Mediterranean strategy won the day. Italy would be invaded and more pressure would be put on Turkey to enter the war. The Americans were thrown off by this, as this was not how FDR had wanted to proceed. But, He did not know the full story. Perhaps the Americans should have figured it out when Churchill then said, I am off to meet Inonu in Ankara. That same month, January of 1943, the British Prime Minister met with the Turks. Churchill opened the talks with his request for Turkey to finally get into the war. The Turkish chief of the general staff replied with, that was possible, but his country would need The following, first, 2,300 tanks, 2,600 large guns, and 120,000 tons of aviation fuel. Oh, and why has the Allies not yet given Turkey the 500 fighter planes it asked for? Churchill gave a watered-down response that Allied supplies would be increased to Turkey if they joined the war. Inonu then gave his own watered-down reply that said he would reconsider Turkish neutrality. Churchill, thinking he may have actually been moving the ball forward, then asked to set up Allied air bases in Turkey. But again, Inonu said, I'll think about it. For Inonu, all questions came down to this. There were currently German forces in Bulgaria, right across from the Turkish border. And if those forces drove southeast towards Istanbul, the economic center of Turkey, the country's entire economy would crash. So until those forces were removed, all talk was just that. Talk. During Churchill's visit, the Allied war planners, still in Casablanca, were putting the finishing touches on their invasion of Sicily. But what was to come after that? The Americans, as in the Chief of Staff, General George C. Marshall, was hoping to then refocus on freeing France. But what he nor FDR knew was that the British were making other plans, literally. A month before the Casablanca meeting, the British War Cabinet had created a report called Offensive Strategy in the Mediterranean that stated, after successful operations in Italy... Our next thrust should be directed against the Balkans. Further, when Churchill met with Inonu, the Prime Minister handed the Turkish leader a note that said Turkey should face the possibility of becoming a full belligerent. In whatever form, this note, or its contents, made its way back to Washington. It's possible that Inonu himself leaked it to cause trouble between FDR and Churchill, and thereby relieving pressure off himself. The American president and General Marshall were none too happy, but Ambassador Halifax tried to smooth things over by telling the two men that this note represented Churchill's personal thoughts, and it was not the official position of the War Cabinet. The Americans could have easily replied with, then why did he give it to the Turkish leader? Why not tell us first? As, in all honesty, the Americans were by this point confident that any new theater would not happen without their commitment. Be that as it may, by this point, the British War Cabinet had already asked for preliminary planning for an invasion of the Adriatic coast. And this planning, at whatever stage would have been moved forward after Sicily became an Allied possession. As far as the Americans knew, all that was being worked on were the plans for invading Italy. The Allies landed on the Italian mainland in September of '43, but soon after, Churchill was in the midst of making plans to capture several Aegean islands. We know this as FDR and Churchill sent more than a few cables talking about taking Rhodes and other German-held islands. Over time, these cables went from the British Prime Minister feeling out his American partner to asking for resources to make the Aegean Plan feasible. FDR said no, politely at first, but then Churchill remembered something from a previous War Cabinet meeting that said In order for the Balkans to be invaded, either Turkey had to come into the war, or Italy had to be taken out. But as the Allies were currently spilling much of their blood in the Italian mountains, the latter did not seem to be possible for the foreseeable future. By October of 1943, the two Western military staffs were arguing about the Aegean. FDR attempted to put a stop to this bickering by getting Churchill to finally show his hand. He wrote to the Prime Minister, As I see it, it is not merely the capture of roads, but it must mean the necessity, and it must be apparent to the Germans, that we intend to go further. Strategically, if we get the Aegean Islands, I ask myself, where do we go from there? To this, Churchill went into damage control mode in trying to convince the President that Britain did not seek a full-scale invasion of the Balkans, but merely commando operations. Not that it mattered, as FDR got the confirmation that he was looking for. The truth was, he still had no idea how far along the British were in their desire to invade the Balkans. Indeed, the plan in London to invade Yugoslavia determined that land bases in Turkey were needed, as Italy was still a battleground. But trying to push across the Bosporus into northern Greece to liberate that country, to only then turn north and go into the Balkans proper seemed too much at the moment. The plan was put on a shelf. But then in the fall of 43, more of Italy became open to the Allies. Those locations along the peninsula could be used as jump-off points for an invasion into Yugoslavia. To wit, the plans were taken down off the shelf. By November '43, a plan entitled Adriatic Bridgehead was in the works. The plan called for a landing along the Adriatic to push into Bulgaria to remove the pro-German government there and then helped the rest of the Balkans, whether they wanted it or not. The best bridgehead location was Durazio Bay in Albania. The tactical planning went forward, which called for three divisions, a first special service force and naval and air support. But this attack, any attack other than what was already going on, would call for landing craft. And as the planning for Operation Overlord the invasion of northern France was underway, London knew the Americans would not be happy. Still, Churchill and some of the members of the War Cabinet could not shake the idea of having so much fruit fall into their laps. First, Bulgaria's government was rumored to be on the edge of switching sides, and if that happened, then Romania, Hungary, and or Croatia might follow suit. Again, the potential was tantalizing. Then there was the advantage of forcing the Germans to open up another front in the war, something they could hardly afford to do. And of course, the materials that came from this region, the main one being chromite, would be cut off. Churchill was determined to stop Turkish and Balkan chromite from reaching the Krupp factories. But as we have seen Turkey was stalling on changing not only their status but any trade deals it currently had with Germany. To combat this Churchill had the idea of bringing up the very issue with Stalin at the Tehran conference in November of 43. He wrote up his ideas for the Balkan invasion, but before meeting with Stalin, the British chief of the imperial staff, Field Marshal Alan Brooke, advised taking that part out. Churchill did so, but was still determined to bring it up personally with Stalin. On November 28, 1943, the very first day of the Tehran Conference, the first time the Big Three met, Churchill brought up to Stalin the idea of a Balkan invasion to relieve pressure, supposedly, on the Eastern Front. FDR was taken aback by this. The Prime Minister had not brought it up to him beforehand, but FDR wisely sat back silent to see what would happen. Yet Stalin was not silent. First, he regarded the Balkans as being within his sphere of influence, something that FDR did not like, but Churchill readily understood. The Soviet leader said no. The Allies should stay with Overlord and the follow-up attack in southern France. As for the Mediterranean, there would be no new action there. As for Turkey, Stalin believed that the years they had wasted on trying to bring Ankara around were enough. The war was finally turning their way. It was time to stay focused, and as for Turkey, well, she had missed the bus. It seems that the Balkan adventure was finally kaput. There was no landing craft on loan from Overlord, and Turkey would not participate. Lastly, even Field Marshal Alan Brooke said it was a non-starter, because now that the plans were finished, the attack would actually take eight divisions. There was no way Stalin and FDR would go along with creating an entirely new front, not As the Americans hoped and Stalin expected, that France was about to become their major contribution to the war. As this was the case, Churchill dropped his charm offensive aimed at Stalin and Inonu. Fewer supplies were sent to Ankara. But when Turkey complained, the British replied, Why didn't you ever join the war? Inono's response was, there are still 26 Axis divisions in Bulgaria, and they will make short work of Turkey's defenses. And he wasn't wrong. Officially, the Turks replied to these smaller shipments by saying, the supplies coming to them had better not be reduced in quality or quantity. But FDR and Churchill shot back, or rather, bazookaed back If Turkey did not stop trading with Germany, and it did not give in to Western demands, not only would the shipments stop altogether, but Washington and London would stay quiet if and when Stalin made territorial demands around the Dardanelles. President İnönü knew his fence-sitting days were over. On April 14, 1944, the Turkish National Assembly stopped exports to Germany. Four months later, all diplomatic relations were cut with Berlin. The Allies followed this up with a demand that Turkey had to join the war by March 1, 1945, if it expected a seat in the future United Nations. Turkey beat the Allies' deadline by a few days. To be fair, Churchill honestly believed that the road to Berlin ran through the Balkans. It was the better path that would not only free up those countries and keep an eye on Soviet expansion, but it would force Turkey into the war. His real reason can only be guessed at. Perhaps to have another partner that was not Soviet Russia. Either way, after Overlord was successful, Churchill altered his memory and official documents to show that he had always believed firmly in the Normandy invasion. Though he told a general in April of '44, this battle in Normandy has been forced upon us by the Russians and by the U.S. military authorities. To be sure, Churchill was convinced that an Allied bloodbath was coming just off the Normandy coast. Thus, he was trying to steer the Allies to the Balkans besides the other reasons, namely keeping control of the Mediterranean and limiting the area where Soviet troops would need to go to win the war. Hindsight shows that he was right about Stalin grabbing up territory on his way to Berlin and the Premier's interest in the Dardanelles. But it would be the atomic bomb that would keep Stalin's appetite in check.